Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thanks very much for coming along today. Today we have with us Dr. Alexei Moraviov, who is the founder and director of the Strategic Flashlight Forum at Curtin University. And Alexei is also senior lecturer in international relations and strategic studies in the School of Social Sciences and Asian Languages at Curtin. And today Alexei is going to revisit the Soviet role in World War II in order to draw some conclusions about current geostrategic trends. So with that, I'll hand over to Alexei. Thanks very much, Alexei. Thanks a lot. Um, good afternoon, everyone. It's my delight to be back in Brisbane, and this time the weather is, is very kind to me, so I'm, I'm truly enjoying my, my trip, not to say that I haven't enjoyed it two years ago, and I still remember in the dinner that we had. It yes. was excellent. Uh, the reason for me to come over here, not to have yet another excellent dinner, but to talk about what I would like to speak to you about. There are two reasons why I decided to, to talk on this matter. One uh, relates to the fact that 2010 is the 65th anniversary year that uh, celebrates the end of hostilities in Europe. And um, back in September, we also commemorated or celebrated the end of hostilities in the Pacific. Uh, so in this sense, it is quite appropriate to revisit uh, that period in world geopolitical history that was quite traumatic and, and yet so profound that had impact that we're feeling even today. And the second reason is because of what's currently happening in the world and, and lessons that we're trying to learn from our recent past, from, our, uh, um, from the recent developments, and whether it's quite appropriate to link it to what we seen and came across and experienced, not we, our predecessors, but we as a civilization, uh, 65 years ago. Well, it's for you to decide after, after the end of this presentation. Um, when, I, when, I, uh, when I speak about this, uh, this topic, I sometimes get re reaction, particularly from the professional community, when they ask me, what do you mean by the forgotten world? Um, uh, Certainly in the, in the professional community, millinery historians, historians in general, IR people, they would probably know and recognize the role in place that uh, the eastern vector of the confrontation in, uh, in Europe did play in the, in the overall context of the, of the World War II dynamics. But by and large, even there, you would still see a divide about the significance of that particular episode, obviously, in, in broader historical terms that was for four years of bitter fighting would still be regarded as an episode. But by and large, in terms of public perception and, and general attitude, that almost feels like a forgotten war, and that's where this title has come from. So it's my, it's my interpretation on the way how I, I see things being looked at. But despite all of that, the conflict in the East, the war, uh, the way how the Soviets describe it, the Russians remember it as the Great Patriotic War, had a profound effect not only on the psycho but also on had broader implications. If we if we revisit hostilities in Europe, we can argue that that was the last, at least for now, and God forbids we'll have any any repetition in the future, uh, conflict within one cultural space. The particulars of that particular part of the hostilities in Europe was characterized by unprecedented ferocity and the sheer size of the armed struggle. And this is something that we can also take on board when talking about contemporary conflicts because of the particular circumstances, ideologies, uh, motives, strategic ends that drove both parties 
decide them on a collision course and then uh, draw their, their strategic behavior. Prima facie, without any dispute, although there might be some uh, opposing views, the, the outburst of hostilities only in Europe was, was a clear indication of failure to, uh, for multinational security structures at that time to fulfill their roles. I mean, the predecessor of the United Nations, the League of Nations, failed to satisfy its requirements and, and, and maintain peace and, and relative stability in the European continent. And, and certainly one of the other lessons that I certainly want to draw attention to prior to, to my talk that this massive development and, and the outcome in May 1945 uh, acted as a cataclysm for yet another major development, rapid reconfiguration of the global geopolitical map and an immediate commencement of yet another major cataclysm that held the world hostage for the next 49 years. I'm talking about the Cold War confrontation. And that's also something perhaps needs to be taken on board on how this massive collisions particularly happening within a relatively short period of time can actually act as pretext for strategic pretext for something much bigger that would be uh, uh, with, with also a more global and profound impacts. So the way how I want to handle the presentation, I just want to, and again, I, mean, I understand this is an enormous task, so I'm not, I'm not trying to give you the uh, or, or trying to fit everything into, into the presentation. So what I'm trying to do is uh, briefly touch on some, um, in my view, major issues concerning the lead-up to initiation of hostilities in the East, briefly to cover the major phases, and then concentrate on immediate and longer-term lessons and strategic implications which can be drawn from analyzing and, and recognizing that particular conflict. If we take ourselves back in time to pre-war situation in Europe, we have to take into consideration the political, geopolitical dynamics that set the scene for the, uh, what even then was recognized to be an inevitable clash. I mean, there was still uh, there was speculation then, and there is still speculation now about strategic intentions of both NATO Germany and the Soviet Union very much linked to analysis of the uh, Moscow Pact of August 1939 and uh, in intentions that Stalin and Hitler may have had in terms of strategic collaboration, uh, engaging in a partnership. And I mean, there is a whole bunch of comparisons that uh, still apply to, uh, to, um, to sort of link the two together. But if, if we go back in time, one could clearly see from, uh, from the developments that were occurring, certainly from early 1930s, and I'm not even talking about the arrival of Nazis to, to power, although that was an, a clear indication uh, to, to the Soviets that uh, the confrontation was inevitable for reasons I'll explain later on. But three years after, uh, after Nazis secured the parliament, uh, civil war interrupted in, in Spain. And the conflict in Spain was the first critical test case of, of how the international community could mitigate regional uh, to become global uh, security crisis. Uh, and, and, and that also created, I mean, the, the, the conflict in Spain created its own paradox. For the first, I mean, the Soviet Union was one of few powers that actually held the Republican government. And the paradox there is that you see a communist state aging a non-communist regime, democratically elected regime, 
to remind you, I mean, one of clear indications of Soviet military aid was the supply of armaments, personnel, volunteers uh, to the Republicans. I mean, there were two reasons for the Soviets to act in this, in this way. Certainly it was uh, Stalin's an opportunity to, uh, not to promote the ideology, but rather than to break the uh, cordon sanitary that was created around the Soviet Union after, after the Bolshevik Revolution, and was effectively retained despite uh, the establishment of diplomatic relations in the early, late 1920s, early 1930s. And secondly, it was a, a, an attempt to deter uh, the rise of uh, Nazi's political and military potential. However, because of uh, major restraints driven by political configuration, but also uh, like, for example, power projection capabilities and the fact that, by and large, the international community felt very divided on the issue of the civil war, the Soviets effectively did not help uh, the Republicans uh, repel Franco's uh, revolt and Franco's right to power. But the fact that back in 35, uh, from 35 to 39, effectively, Soviet and, and Nazi military units uh, uh, and, and soldiers were engaged in, in an open confrontation, something that could only be, uh, could be compared, for example, to the situation in, in, in Korea. Was told, I mean, if you compare Soviet, Soviet U.S. confrontation, although the United States would have then had a legitimate mandate to use force in, in Korea, the Soviets were there in, in a concealed form, although the size of Soviet uh, military presence was still considerable. The situation really did, did suggest and, and certainly developed the psyche on both sides that uh, considering one another as, as strategic adversaries. Then came Munich. Munich is something that doesn't really get discussed much in, in, in Western circles, but uh, Munich effectively prefaced uh, by and large the Moscow Pact. The partition of Czechoslovakia is a logical outcome of the policy uh, of appeasement and, and a try to push to push the Nazi Germany uh, to project its power eastwards. And ironically, one of the, one of the participants or, or beneficiaries of the Munich uh, agreements was Poland, which was invaded uh, a year later, or yet less than a year later. Munich came also at a time when uh, the Soviets failed to secure a collective security agreement, or end, I mean, form an anti-Nazi coalition, which then should comprise France, uh, the UK, and, and the Soviet Union. They were, uh, talks were held in Moscow involving uh, high-level defense command of, of three parties involved. But Western delegations came to Moscow without having any interest in actually signing any agreements. They, hadn't, they haven't had any executive powers. They were basically, I mean, it turned out, it, I mean, the, the, the dialogue went for about two or three months and ended up to be a talk fest. And when Munich uh, was, was hit, the, the Kremlin understood that uh, the West wasn't really interested in partnering um, uh, with, with the Soviets because one of the propositions that Stalin put on the table before Munich was that um, we as the Soviet Union would actually help to secure Czechoslovakia against possible Nazi invasion through the deployment of our first strategic echelon into the into, into Czechoslovakia as long as London and, and Paris would convince Poland to allow passage, uninterrupted passage of Soviet forces across its territory. The decision uh, or the suggestion was ruled out immediately. And obviously after that the Soviets 
also driven by strategic rationale of expanding the, the buffer zone and, and creating cordons in Italy between then and the Nazi Germany signed the pact. However, the pact with, with Nazis, which uh, com effectively completed the division of Central and Eastern Europe, had a different angle. It wasn't just about partnering with, with a possible aggressor. Soviet historiography, Russian historiography, still talking about the strategic rationale of buying time, etc., etc. But there was a qu quite a clear uh, Far Eastern slash Pacific spin attached to the, to the pact. Um, Stalin calculations, uh, Stalin's strategic calculus was to break up a possible um, bilateral defense agreement between Nazi Germany and Japan, specifically targeted, uh, specifically in relation to uh, running conjoint operations against the Soviet Union. The time of the pact came soon after General Zhukov, that made his name in the Battle of Halkengol, uh, the, 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 the brief campaign against. Uh, Japanese in Mongolia successfully completed the counter-offensive operation against uh, Japanese forces there. Uh, Japan suffered a military and political defeat in the Far East, which sort of calmed their ambitions to, to secure Eastern Siberia and the Far East. Then came the, Warsaw, um, um, the Moscow Treaty, which also uh, restrained uh, political maneuvering of, of the Nazis. And in this sense, it's important to recognize that the Soviet Union historically found themselves in the same shoes as, as Germany, or Germany with an ambition of fearing a war onto France. One is in Europe, another one would be in Asia and, and the Far East. That was a long-standing uh, recognition, certainly after the defeat uh, suffered uh, at the hands of Japanese and Russo-Japanese war. So for the Soviet Union, pre-war Soviet Union, and even war, World War II Soviet Union, avoiding an engagement on, on both strategic fronts was the number one issue. And it had uh, some positive uh, implications that uh, moved later on in the first year of the campaign, to which I will come back. But why did I say that it would, I mean, it simply was unrealistic to suggest that Stalin was seriously considering a pact uh, with Hitler or any, any suggestions concerning uh, possible partnership of the, of the two uh, totalitarian regimes. It comes from the very philosophy that uh, Hitler or whoever wrote Mein Kampf, because there are different interpretations of the authorship, but certainly Hitler had quality time in prison to, you know, to do other than you know, suing and other things. But if, if we take it as a Magna Carta of Nazi state ideology, it bluntly says that the policy towards this, the policy towards uh, Soviet Eurasia would be completely different towards Nazi policy in Western Europe. It's all about territorial expansion. It's all about acquisition of lands and resources. So if, if you're in the decision-making circle and, and, and you basically see the Mein Kampf becoming the Nazi ideology, and it spells out what, what your strategic intent towards that part of Europe or Eurasian continent is. I mean, you have to be incredibly naive not to take it seriously. And Mein Kampf was realized and also the strategic plan the Nazis drafted back in, in late 1930, uh, which was codenamed General Plan Ost, uh, talking about specific uh, subdivision of the secured land in, in lands in the east, the ones that would be turned into uh, protectorates, the ones that would be, become friendly buffer zones, uh, specific reference to Ukraine, and I mean the irony that you can actually you know, think about this in, con in the context of recent geopolitical developments in Eastern Europe and how Ukraine was always 
being considered to be a buffer zone between Russia now, a former Soviet Union, and, and, and Western Europe. The Caucasus is an area of strategic significance, something that is also uh, has become quite prominent uh, these days, certainly in the 21st century, last decade of the 1990s. Uh, the Baltics, another another angle. So there's been quite quite a lot, and I mean that that's the happening in terms of in terms of thinking. In part, it was it was coming to the fruition, the height of Nazi power, power 1942, saw the, uh, the the beginning or the sort of major transformation of Europe's geopolitical configuration, also in relation to secured lands in the East as a result of successes of the first two years of campaigns on the Eastern Front. And the obvious final decision was made in December 1940 when Hitler uh, signed Directive 21, codenamed Operation Barbarossa, uh, authorizing uh, the development of a strategic offensive campaign against the Soviet Union. The campaign itself is a unique case uh, of, of strategic analysis and, and strategic planning. Compared to campaigns in Europe, the difference here would be in the scale and the ambition. The ambition was through uh, launching simultaneous assaults against three major strategic centers of gravity, uh, Kiev, Leningrad, and Moscow, bring down the Soviet Union within within a swift period of uh, a maximum of six months. So, and that's where the concept of Blitzkrieg, Blitzkrieg came to life. The ambition was that you had to run uh, simultaneous assaults at the, at, the, at the front of about 3,000 kilometers, which was never done before. And that was another reason why the Soviets were in part caught by surprise, because Stalin couldn't possibly foresee such, such a massive employment of forces despite incoming intel reports. And the, I mean, the campaign itself, the bold ambition, required massive concentration of forces. In the initial stages, 20% of the overall firepower was, was deployed in, in, the, in the Eastern Front. However, despite all of that, what, what came as a big surprise to, to the Nazis was the, the scale of fighting at the, at the best months of when they actually had not just strategic but tactical superiority where they could advance for up to 40 kilometers a day. Uh, the losses that they were still taking were unacceptably high in, in their standards compared to what they have suffered uh, over, the, over the past three years of running so-called strange wars in, in, in Western Europe. I mean, the combined casualty toll, fatality toll in the, in the first month and a half of the campaign exceeded by far the combined losses that they have suffered whilst uh, securing uh, uh, the Balkans, uh, Poland, uh, France, and, and the Benelux. However, for the Soviets, it, it started as a major strategic uh, catastrophe. Whilst numerically the Soviets were roughly compa uh, comparable in terms of combined potential to the Nazis, and in fact, they had some technical advantages, for example, in the number of armor deployed, in, in Western strategic front, the Nazis managed to achieve an element of tactical surprise. Strategic surprise was lost because both countries realized that they were on a, on a collision course. However, the, the sheer size of the losses was simply incomprehensible, and that actually gave sound grounds to Nazis as well as Western intelligences at, at the time to basically um, erase the, the Red Army from, from their calculus saying it's, it's no longer a fighting force because Basically, uh, having the whole, the entire army of close to 3, 000, uh, 3 million people taken out of action, 
through uh, casualties, uh, uh, fatalities, as well as uh, uh, prison toll, losing the entire uh, air fleet uh, in, in the first three days of the campaign, uh, so, I mean, uh, um, uh, allowing the enemy to break through strategic defenses and, and reaching out uh, advances of up to 600 kilometers. That was something that was simply uncomprehensible, and that also gave, for example, Hitler uh, an indication that the campaign would have been won within two months, not even six months. And it seemed like that the Nazis were making progress. Not as, not as quickly, though, as they thought, but certainly by, uh, in late September, they launched their, uh, their major strategic operation, the Battle for Moscow, and which was the strategic end for, for the Barbarossa. At the time of the climax of the battle, in, in, in late October, early November, the Nazis were literally sitting on the outskirts of Moscow. The Kremlin one was within artillery firing range. But then the Russians caught them, or the Soviets caught them, uh, by complete surprise when they launched counter, winter counteroffensive. Uh, one of the reasons for, uh, for Soviet uh, victory uh, in the Battle for Moscow, which was the first major military victory against, in the fight against Nazi Germany, not only for the Soviet Union, but for the anti-Nazi coalition, was the Eastern Angle, the Pacific Angle. Coming back to what happened in, in August 1939, the fact that Japan was taken out of the equation, they still had battle plans to invade the Far East, but they were restrained by having a neutrality pact, which I don't think Japanese really seriously took and would, would easily override it if, if the situation were to permit. But the fact that they were still restrained and, and, and got very busy in the Pacific because they launched an attack on Pearl Harbor, and linked to uh, the Battle for Moscow is, is the issue of uh, strategic intelligence exchange, actually. Uh, I mean, there are, there are some analysis being done that Stalin, for example, knew that uh, Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor, but he didn't make a phone call to, to Roosevelt simply because he was not interested in, in, in not seeing Japanese engaging the Americans. Similarly, at, by that time, Stalin began trusting his own intelligence services and, and certainly receiving strategic intel from Tokyo that Japan will not invade the Far East in, in the campaign of 1931 because the imperial cabinet made the decision to, to engage in, in, in Pacific Asia, uh, allowed Stalin to redeploy considerable um, portion of standing forces from the Far East to Moscow. And it was the Siberian Far Eastern divisions that actually made a decisive contribution. The, the Nazis didn't take them into consideration. They, they miscalculated uh, Japan's strategic behavior. They overcalculated their own potential. Uh, they didn't take into consideration uh, climatic factors. I mean, uh, the Nazis were still effectively uh, doing the campaign in, in, in summer uniforms with the poor logistical base. I mean, that's one of few occasions when they were fully dressed for, for particular winter conditions. And also, I mean, there are a number of other factors that, that they did take into consideration. But overall, the Nazis were pushed back, Moscow was saved. The battle for, for itself, in terms of political applications, had enormous consequences. It bolstered the morale not only of the Soviet forces, but also of, of the resistance right across Europe. It uh, put on a back burner intentions of, for example, the Iranians to consider joining the, the, the Nazi coalition, so it eased tension a bit in, in, in the Middle East, and after that the, the British and, and the Soviets uh, 
secured, uh, secured Iran. So it, it had a profound uh, political Im impact, uh, leaving alone uh, military consequences. The following year, the Nazis uh, tried to, uh, to take revenge by uh, initiating major strategic offensive in the southern front. By September, they reached Stalingrad, and the, the vision there was get the Caucasus, having secu securing access to uh, Azerbaijani oil reserves, uh, attacking Moscow from, from the south, but also, and that's obviously you know, Hitler's grand thinking, creating a pathway into Central Asia and possibly with a launch pad into British India. I mean, for Hitler, British India, just like North America, was one of the dream targets, whether it was realistic, whether it was just pure speculation or not, not really sure. And yet, at the time when everybody thought the Soviets were just about to crack because uh, the Nazis effectively secured the bulk of Stalingrad, they were sitting on the banks of the Volga River, the 62nd Army that defended the city basically controlled a very narrow gap of several hundred meters. Still, through careful calculation, the Soviets managed to deploy, develop strategic re uh, reserves and, and, and deliver a strategic counteroffensive uh, operation codenamed URAN. Uh, one of the reasons behind the successes in that campaign, which, which hasn't been recognized in Soviet historiography, but is now getting more and more recognition, is the effects of land lease. 1941, uh, first half of 1942, was absolutely critical for the Soviets. They had to evacuate the bulk of its industrial, their industrial potential, which was in the western part of the Soviet Union. Ten million people, 1,500 enterprises, were literally moved to the east. Central Asia, Eastern Siberia, the Urals, which uh, kick-started a new industrial base there. But it took a while for them to actually have any output of those industries starting rolling out and uh, ending in the, in the front line. So that was the interim period which, which became absolutely critical in terms of re-equipping the army, remaining the army, and, and, and supplying it with advanced hardware. And that's where the effects of land lease actually filled the technical gap that the Soviets experienced at, at, uh, in 1941-42. Certainly the supply of, for example, U.S.-made 4x4s from Willis to Studebakers increased the strategic mobility of Soviet formations. I mean, the, the, the famous Katusha rockets, uh, which in 41 were mounted on indigenous chassis, from 1942 were all mounted on Studebakers because they had far better cross-country performance. And that and that's, uh, actually sa says something. So coalition forces, oh, sorry, talking talk contemporary language, anti-Nazi anti coalition actually had an indirect input into the success of Soviet, uh, uh, Soviet forces. In, in Stalingrad, I mean, the lessons from Stalingrad, once again, the, the Nazis did not take into consideration the, the power, the, the, the resources the Soviets had, but more importantly, above all, they haven't calculated the will of the nation, the morale factor, and that's, that's something that I think is very important to take into consideration when talking about uh, contemporary conflicts and, and political developments. The last chance for the Nazis was the, the following campaign. That was the time when uh, they basically pulled their resources together in, in a desperate need to turn the, the tide of events. Uh, the battle for Kursk, which turned out to be the most massive employment of mechanized firepower in any time in history, was an attempt for the Nazis to, to basically over, overwhelm the Soviets. They were so desperate that they began redeploying forces, say, from the Middle Eastern theater, 
I remember reading some memoirs of, uh, of uh, Soviet veterans. They said we were astounded and a bit of a culture shock to see, for example, yellow painted tanks emerging in our frontline positions because the Nazis were rolling them across, uh, across Europe so quickly they didn't even have time to change camouflage to suit local landscape. So they were still painting in desert colors. But by and large, uh, here once again, the difference between previous campaigns was that this time the Soviets knew they had incoming intelligence, they had the resources, they decided to engage the Nazis in a, in a, in a carefully planned strategic defensive operation, wipe out the shock element, overwhelm them with, with counter-offensive firepower, and then uh, charge weakened forces. As a result, after 50, 50 um, uh, days of battle, the Soviets didn't just crack the, the Nazi military machine, but also managed to uh, make some significant advances, uh, which resulted in the liberation of considerable parts of their territory. The advances were about three, four hundred kilometers in some, in some cases. After that, uh, the countdown for the Nazi Germany began. Kursk did change the tide of, of war. Just like with Stalingrad, they changed the tide of war in, in, in Europe. Western allies began realizing that the Soviets could actually finish the campaign without them. Although in Tehran, it was still decided that coalition, uh, anti-Nazi uh, coalition partners, Western partners, would not engage in Europe until the following year. That coincided with um, Operation Overload, coincided with Soviet strategic assault in, in Belarus. Offensive in Belarus, which resulted in, in Soviet liberation of Poland, was, was a pathway to the final battle of the war, which was the Battle for Berlin. Proved to be one of the most uh, bloodiest uh, confrontations of the conflict, despite numerical and technological superiority. Uh, Soviet forces did take some serious casualties. Also because of extra political pressures being placed on them, Stalin was absolutely keen to, to ensure that it was the Soviets that would secure Berlin, not, not Montgomery or, or the Americans. And, and that put enormous uh, pressures on the field commanders to actually charge for Berlin when the, the Russians were only 70 kilometers from Berlin when the American, uh, U.S., British forces were about 300 k's. But then there was fear that the, the Nazis would simply surrender and, and create corridors for uh, Western forces to move into, into Berlin to prevent it from falling to the Soviet hands. But the fall of Berlin effectively concluded campaign in Europe. So what was the major strategic outcomes? In terms of military strategic outcomes, not taking into consideration the Eastern Front is, is, is absolutely silly because it is, it is the Eastern Front that destroyed the bulk of um, uh, Nazi military machine. Even if you look at the, at the fighting ratio compared to similar campaigns in Europe or affiliated strategic theaters, the intensity and the ferocity, living alone the philosophy of the campaign uh, in the Eastern Front was simply incomparable to even northern, uh, northern Africa, I mean, one can dispute how, how intense the battle for Italy was. In terms of geopolitical outcomes, it was the victory over Nazis that brought the Soviet Union a sub-superpower status, not the superpower status, though, and certainly gave the Soviets extra leverage, political and military, to influence not only regional but international affairs. We have to be mindful that at the time when the Soviet Union was recognized as a key contributor to international effort, communist and, and socialist and Marxist movements across uh, um, Western European and other countries were legalized, which gave the Soviets an extra leverage and, and opportunity to influence 
and engaged in the ideological campaign in countries which were predominantly capitalist at that time. It gave the Soviets, it gave Soviets territorial concessions, expanded territory in both uh, Eastern Europe and the Far East, and uh, the Soviet Union acquired the network of clients and, and later on alliances uh, in both Europe and Asia. So what other lessons can we learn from uh, operations uh, in, in the East? The war against the Nazis, the Soviet war against the Nazis, uh, raised the strategic profile of guerrilla campaigns. The guerrilla factor, particularly in the absence of the Second Front, the way how the Soviets described um, in the anticipation for their allies to open up hostilities in Western Europe, has effectively substituted that. Organized armed resistance, coordinated attacks, particularly in times of strategic offensive and defensive operations. I mean, the, one of the key successes of Soviets uh, during the Battle for Kursk was a coordinated guerrilla campaign aimed at attacking strategic transit routes, uh, communication routes of, uh, of the Nazis, which prevented them from maneuvering the resources, but also uh, engaging in, in organized retreat. The campaign, the, 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 the partisan movement, the guerrilla movement in, in Eastern, in the former, in, within the pyramid of the former Soviet Union, gave an indication on how much effort uh, a regular standing force has to mount in order to simply contain, not defeat. And, and that was another lesson that was conveniently forgotten. You cannot defeat a popular based uh, organized armed resistance but simply contain an organized armed resistance. Towards the end, of up to 30% of the overall deployable forces in the Eastern Front that Nazis had, plus coalition partners. It wasn't just about Nazis and, and, and the Soviets, or a bunch of coalition. I mean, the, Romania had several armies deployed, uh, Italy had several armies deployed, Hungary sent uh, core, even, even the even the Spanish sent the so-called Blue Division. Uh, to Leningrad. 30% of all deployable forces were busy managing uh, guerrilla protecting supply routes, something once again, you know, awfully remind, certainly reminded me of Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and similar type of uh, uh, similar sort of con contingencies. I mean, the Soviets did demonstrate how effective a determined guerrilla force can be. Uh, particularly, and, and I mean, depending on how you did describe it, particularly when it, 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 it gets and, um, an unconditional state support. Uh, linked to guerrilla forces, how do you contain resistance? Obviously, starts, uh, the Nazi ideology, uh, which was about cleansing, cleansing the territory, uh, uh, reducing, uh, reducing the, the, the Slavic population occupying those lands, was very clear. But in part, Nazi terror was a part of their response towards successful guerrilla operations. The Soviets actually did the calculus saying if Nazis were to succeed, and that hasn't been really recognized, which also helps to explain Soviet determination in the war, were to succeed in, in, in not in defeating the, uh, uh, defeating the Soviet Union, but achieving general plan post. The, the overall population of the Soviet Union, which was about 200 million at that time, were to be reduced down to 14. All of them to be moved to effectively Siberia, east of the Ural Mountains, where they have to be sort of, you know, create massive reservation area, free of any industrial potential, which would be vaporized through continuous aerial bombardment. 
didn't really work. And in fact, the more hard power you employ against against the locals, the more you you trying to alienate them, the more popular resistance is going to kickstart. Initially, the organized resistance behind Nazi alliance within Soviet space wasn't really as effective as it was in 42 and certainly in 43. But in part, it was it was carefully chosen containment, local containment techniques like that, that that drove up popular base once again. Um, uh, another um, another lesson. Overall, particularly projecting onto contemporary environment, the, the outbreak of hostilities in Europe was, in my view, certainly a failure of multinational institutions and, and legal mechanisms. I mean, treaties were signed. Everyone who was everyone in Europe had non-aggression pact with the Nazis. Didn't stop the Nazis and didn't stop others from doing their own business. In terms of strategic reasons for initiating hostilities or engaging in aggressive foreign policy behavior, once again, territories, uh, dependencies, strategic raw materials, uh, energy resources, uh, certainly this, this push to, to secure the Caucasus was a clear example. Looking or, or sort of unwrapping the anti-Nazi coalition and comparing it to this global, if it's still in existence, coalition against terror, well, to me it's more mythical statement rather than any, any you know, actual coalition. Both of them, well, certainly if we're talking about uh, w, uh, GWOT 2010, I don't think it's there. I mean, you can talk about coalition of the willing or any other arrangement, but engaging particularly opposing sides to in the face of common threats, I don't, I don't think there is, there is that. So, I mean, both of them did demonstrate that they were short-lived entities. And at the same time, fragilities and disagreements based on other, other interests uh, did create and continue to create now opportunities for opponents. The war in Europe it also demonstrated the, the emergence of different technologies and the increasing lethality of conventional power. Yes, we remember that uh, the, the war, uh, World War II, ended with a big bang in Japan, or a couple of bin bangs in, in Japan. But once again, revisiting, for example, coalition bombings or allied bombings over Western Europe, it did demonstrate, nonetheless, that you can have same strategic outcomes without going asymmetric. For example, in, uh, on the 28th of July 1943, Allied uh, forces bombed uh, Hamburg. Over, one, over a single night, 40,000 were killed. Compare it to immediate casualties sustained by the Japanese during the, the nuclear bombing of, of, of Hiroshima. I mean, one can argue, you know, 200 extra bombers, and, and you would still reach this target of 60,000 killed uh, in, in, in the instance. So in this sense, even uh, conventional military power of that time did, uh, did show that it could uh, give you strategic outcomes without necessarily going asymmetric. And we should also remember that there was a threat of uh, an unrestricted chemical warfare that uh, based European strategic theater. If you will, what, remember the wartime chronicles of World War II, you would see even civilians were, were wearing gas masks all the time. They had them on them because there was a fear that the Nazis would, um, that had considerable uh, stockpiles of uh, CWs, would employ them. But then Hitler felt like if they would do something, the Soviets that also had considerable stockpiles and the British would, would, would counter them. Another serious point that I was sort of uh, leading towards um, a couple of times, a uh, problem with uh, actionable knowledge. 
serious miscalculations on both sides that uh, led to major, major errors which uh, actually were one of the determinants of the outcomes of not just certain, certain uh, operations, certain campaigns, but the overall campaign. I certainly want to emphasize the, uh, the morale and culture factor, which I, I think is certainly from Western strategic uh, thinking and viewpoint awfully gets uh, undervalued. But this is a very important uh, element to take into consideration. You may be facing a technologically inferior force. You may be thinking that you overwhelm them with your, with your firepower, with your technical advances. But they may still win uh, a single battle or the overall campaign because the, in terms of motivations, in terms of, the, in terms of their determination, they would be far, far more superior uh, towards you. The Nasus did, did display, in terms of combat qualities, they did display the same sort of problems that some of the uh, Western Allied forces are facing. When they were stripped of technological uh, superiority, when they had, haven't had air power support, when they haven't had ground artillery support, all of a sudden they had, particularly also in the absence of a clear-cut morale boost to fight, clearly an aggressive campaign, all of a sudden their will to fight would, would be ser seriously undermined. And you need to look into this, and this is certainly how the Russians look into this. I mean, the, the Great Patriotic War, the Eastern Front, was one of the violent episodes in the broader history of East-West, or I would argue West-West strategic confrontation, which goes back to, to the times of Russia's arrival under, under, under Peter, and Peter I. And, and certainly thinking in terms of Mackinder's vision about controlling pivotary, who controls pivotary, controls the world, Hitler certainly, I don't know whether he read actually my kingdom, but certainly his thinking was very much alongside of uh, Sir Halfron's uh, Half, thinking uh, in, in this sense. And I will stop here. Okay, thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.